Well, we're going to look together this morning at that most famous of psalms, the 23rd Psalm. I'm going to put this down here so that will tell me how long I'm going on for. I noticed the clock at the back is stuck at, uh, at 20 to 1, but I, I hope we won't make it uh, to that length of time. Psalm 23 is uh, undoubtedly one of the most well-known and well-loved portions of the Bible. Uh, many of us here, perhaps, we could risk it from memory. Uh, some of us may have known these famous words uh, since our childhood. Uh, most of us will have sung some kind of version of the psalm, um, perhaps in church, uh, maybe even at a funeral service. And yet, though its words are well-known, The same cannot always be said for their meaning. In one sense, the words themselves are easy uh, to memorize or recite. But to grasp what this psalm is really about is a little more demanding. Because here are words that challenge us, challenge us to know God, to trust God, to rely on God, to surrender our whole lives to God. And though the psalm was composed by King David, a man after God's own heart, he was not the first in the Bible to say that the Lord is my shepherd. Those words were first spoken by the patriarch Jacob in Genesis 48 and verse 15. He talks there of the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And so the language of the Lord as a shepherd to his people is language that arises out of a deep experiential knowledge of God. The words of this psalm are words that have been forged on the anvil of sometimes hard and difficult experiences of life. David, like Jacob before him, had come to know and discover for himself amidst uh, the many troubles and difficulties of this life that the Lord was his shepherd. And that imagery is, of course, as we read from John chapter 10, picked up in the New Testament, most notably in that passage where Jesus applies it directly to himself. He is the good and the true shepherd. He is the one who knows his sheep. He is the one who even lays down his life for his own flock. And I think the first line of the psalm really contains its overarching theme Look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, for the psalmist, knowing the Lord is everything. A want is, of course, a lack of something. But if we know the Lord, we will lack, says the psalmist, no good thing. There is no deficiency in the one who is our Lord and Savior. There is no deficiency in Christ. Everything we need is to be found in him. He is an incomparable and all-sufficient Savior. There is no one like him. 
Calvin writes, our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. In his little book, uh, I Shall Not Want, the American Baptist preacher Robert Ketchum uh, tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who asked if any of the children in in the class could recite the 23rd Psalm. And a four-year-old girl uh, quickly raised her hand and the teacher was, of course, a little bit skeptical about whether she could, in fact, recite the whole psalm. But she allowed the girl to go ahead and so she stood up and she faced the class and she bowed her head. And she said this, she said, The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. And then she sat down again. Well, the little girl may have missed a few verses, but she really captured the psalmist's heart of being utterly contented in the shepherd's care and love. Not desiring anything else but that. The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. So what does this really mean or look like in practice? What does it mean when we say the Lord is our shepherd? What does the good shepherd, what does our Lord Jesus bring to his people? What does he provide for his sheep as they make their way through the many challenges of this life? Well, let me suggest four things from the psalm this morning. And the first is this, in verses 2 and 3, is he provides renewal in the path of discipleship. He provides renewal in the path of discipleship. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The presence of the shepherd with his people means forgiveness and renewal and restoration. Now, the imagery of these verses is that of of content. It's a pastoral scene. It's one of contentment and peace. But I would suggest that the key phrase here is this. He restores my soul. The word used is one that means to return or to turn back. And in the Old Testament, it was often used for repentance. Here, it simply means to restore something that was lost. Now, David, the writer of the psalm, was, of course, a man who knew something of failure in his own life. His sins and moral failures were widely known. And so he speaks here as a man with a past, as someone who knew what it was to fail God. He knew what it was to carry around with him that burden of sin and guilt. He knew what it was to be plagued with painful thoughts of the past, with a sense of unworthiness. He knew what it was to feel the weight of his sins about him. And it's the same for all of us who travel the path of Christian discipleship. Sometimes our past sins and failures rise up before us and they accuse our consciences. 
great Scottish divine Samuel Rutherford famously described this as the old ashes of his sins becoming stirred up to be a new fire of sorrow to him. What David had come to realize, however, is that there was more grace in God's heart than there was sin in his past. That the Lord abounds in mercy and that with him there is forgiveness of sins. Here is the good shepherd who seeks out lost sheep and restores them to the flock. We sometimes sing an old hymn, I was lost but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray, threw his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. Now, we may feel, wait a minute, in David's case, he was someone who really needed forgiveness and restoration. After all, he was guilty of so much that was wrong, lies and deception, lust and adultery, not to mention murder. We may say, well, we, we don't, we're not quite in the same place as, as, as he was. But that would be a mistake. Because the seeds of all those sins are in us all. We've all sinned and fallen short. We all stand in need of forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Friends, this is part of the good news, isn't it? Part of the gospel. With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. And yet sometimes, even as believers, we find that so hard to take in, hard to believe, hard to grasp, hard to comprehend. Such is the forgiveness of God that we can scarcely take it in. Such are our sins that it all seems too good to be true. Surely God cannot love me. Surely he can't forgive all my sins. Surely he cannot be favorable to one like me. But friends, in the gospel, he tells us that he can, that he is, and that it's true. There's a story in the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, The First Forty Years, uh, written by Ian Murray. And he tells this story back in the 1930s, when Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in London, uh, last century, when he was a minister at Sandfields in Wales in Aberavon, um, there was a notorious sinner in the community, a man called William Tom- Thomas, and he had a nickname. He was known as Staffordshire Bill. He was a man of around 70, infamous in the community for the life that he led, his dirty language, his loose morals, his drunken ways. And he was in the pub one night and he overheard a conversation at a neighboring table where the men were speaking about the Sandfields church where Lloyd-Jones preached. Yes, said the one man to the other, I was there last Sunday night and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. Of the rest of the conversation, he heard nothing. But arrested and now completely sobered, he said to himself, if there's hope for everybody then there's hope for me. I'll go to that chapel myself and see what that man says. Well, to cut a long story short, 
He eventually made his way to church one Sunday evening. He heard the gospel. He was marvelously and gloriously converted. But just a few weeks later, early on a Monday morning, William Thomas appeared unannounced at the the manse door to see Lloyd-Jones. He was in a very distressed and anxious condition. Thoughts of his past life, the things that he'd said and done, even calling Jesus Christ a bastard, had flooded into his mind and heart such that he could not believe that he had been forgiven. He found himself engulfed in darkness and misery. And Lloyd-Jones took time to speak to him patiently, showed him from the word of God that he could be forgiven and that his heinous sins, like heinous sin like all the others, had been washed away completely by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. All his sin had been forgiven. Friends, we need to remember that. We need to understand that. And we need to rejoice in that. But as Isaac Watts, uh, the verse of Isaac Watts, and there was... There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose some of their guilty stains, a few of their guilty stains. No friends, lose all, all their guilty stains. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for us? Isn't that good news for you? Isn't that good news for me? Here is the good shepherd who restores his people when they have fallen. Here is our Lord Jesus Christ, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Here is the one who is able to lift us up when we've fallen, who brings us back when we've strayed. Here is our pardoning God who delights to welcome sinners and rejoice over them. Here is the one who can restore your soul and lead you out into a new day into a new way, into paths of righteousness for his same sake. Our sins may indeed be many, but praise God, his mercy is so much more. It is the God who provides renewal in the path of discipleship. And then secondly, he provides comfort in the place of deep darkness. Verse 4 of the psalm, comfort in the place of deep darkness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a sudden change of mood. The scene switches from the green pastures and the still waters to the foreboding valley of uh, darkness and death from the openness and light of renewal and spiritual refreshment were plunged into the gloomy, shadowy darkness. And the imagery is of a life-threatening situation. Here is a deep ravine fraught with danger. Here are the circumstances of life that often induce fear and anxiety in us. Here are the dark valleys that at times we all have to journey through. The dark valley of bereavement and loss, serious illness, depression, 
loneliness, social isolation, and of course death itself. They are hard places to walk through. And yet even in the midst of this valley of deep darkness, the psalmist is able to say, I fear no evil. Why is that? And how is he able to say that? Is it because he's strong? He's self-sufficient? Is it because in some way superior to other people? No, he says, it's because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The absence of fear is simply down to the covenant presence of God with his people. Not because of anything in us. Rather, it's everything to do with the Lord who is with us. It's his presence that brings comfort in the midst of the dark valleys of this life. Notice how the language changes here from the third person to the second person. If in verses 1 through 3 he's speaking about the shepherd, now here in verse 4 he's speaking, you'll notice, directly to the shepherd. You are with me. It's almost as if the trouble of the valley drives him closer to the shepherd and brings a deeper sense of intimacy and closeness. Isn't that often the case? In, in one sense, it's not that Christ is closer in the valley, but rather we come to realize in the valley just how close he has always been. How true it is that it's the hard experiences of life that often drive us closer to the Lord. The Lord's presence with his people is intensely real. It's a strong presence. It's characterized here by the shepherd's rod and staff, tools of the shepherd's work. That work was often hard and dangerous. Enemies had to be fended off. Direction and guidance had to be provided for the flock. And friends, Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, is no weakling or wimp. He is ready to defend his flock. No one, says the Apostle John, can snatch his sheep out of his hand. The shepherd doesn't carry a club for nothing. He's more than able to deal with anything that the valley might throw at us. And how important it is for us to know that and believe it. Maybe we're not traveling through the dark valley today. But who knows what lies ahead? Who knows next month? Who knows next year? Last year, 2020, around Easter, the wife of a friend who was in ministry who was dying of cancer, who was nearing the end of his life, just a few weeks really to live, and she wrote these moving words in their blog. They had kind of done a blog as they went through that deep and dark valley. She wrote this. As we've watched recent events, and as we reflect on our own journey, I often wonder what life would be like facing these evils without faith. 
The the evils themselves are no different, whether you have faith or not. But how you read them and react to them is very different. Over the past month, I've seen firsthand genuine fear in some of the most stable, got-it-together people I know. And over the past two years, some of you who do not have faith have expressed your admiration of how we've walked this journey because of our faith. All I would want to say is this, that faith doesn't change COVID or cancer, but faith does help you walk through the valley. It connects you to the God who will be with you through every moment of it. Even when nobody else is with you, whether in hospital, in isolation, or in the dark, sleepless hours of the night, he is with you. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. And so, friends, there is comfort even in the face of the gaping jaws of death itself. Where other guides are forced to turn back and can go no farther, the good shepherd never leaves his own. For this shepherd has laid down his own life for his sheep. And he is able to provide comfort in the place of deep darkness. He makes all the difference in the world. Renewal in the path of discipleship. Comfort in the place of deep darkness. And then thirdly here, blessing in the face of opposition. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. At this point, the psalm appears to take off in in a somewhat different direction. Indeed, some scholars divide the psalm between verses 1 and 4 deal with the Lord as shepherd, verses 5 and 6 that speak of him as a host. I'm not entirely persuaded by them, I have to say, but nonetheless, verse 5 presents us with a somewhat striking and unusual picture. Table of feasting prepared in the presence of enemies. Here are blessings and good things being enjoyed in the face of the enemy. There is uh, anointing with oil. There's an overflowing cup. It's such an unusual and incongruous image Indeed, it's one that's led to much speculation. One commentator suggests that perhaps David has in mind a particular incident in his own life. 2 Samuel 17, verses 27 through 29, we read there of David fleeing from Absalom, who had seized his throne. And uh, when David arrives in Mahanaim, we read three of his supporters there, They brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Well, what is that if it's not a table 
prepared before David's enemies. Now, of course, sometimes in the providence of God, we too are led into situations of danger and difficulty where enemies and opposition lurk. It's an uncomfortable truth, perhaps, but the shepherd sometimes leads his flock, not by just by the green pastures and the still waters, but into situations of trial and testing. And he does that for a reason and for a purpose. He takes us where we would not naturally go and shows himself to us there in ways that we could never expect. God sometimes leads us into unexpected places so that we might trust him all the more and so that he might bless us in ways that we could never have foreseen. The shepherd sometimes leads the flock into enemy territory. Our hearts are confused. What is going on? Why, why are we here? Why has he led us here? Why indeed? To show us that he has the power to preserve us and provide for us and bless us. He provides for us even when our enemies are close. Because in God's economy, the best of blessings are often reserved for the darkest of hours. And here, the blessing of the Lord is described, you'll notice, in terms of a head anointed with oil, an overflowing cup. The banquet that God provides is marked by this anointing beforehand. It issues in a celebration of his overflowing, abundant goodness. When I, well, many, many, many years ago, when I was a wee boy in Sunday school, we had certain songs that we sang every week, it seemed. We sang the same two songs. And one of those songs was a song called Running Over. It had actions to it. Um, I don't know whether I should show you the actions or whatever, but uh, running over, running over, my cup's full and running over. That's how it went. Just be glad I'm not singing it. Since the Lord saved me, I'm as happy as can be. My cup's full and running over. And here it's David whose cup is full and running over. His whole life overflows with a, with a spirit of thanksgiving and praise and worship. It's not without reason that the old Belgic confession in its first article calls God the overflowing fountain of all good. The psalmist experiences so much of God's goodness that it simply cannot be contained. It's running over. And if our Lord Jesus Christ can uphold and bless his people in the face of opposition, then, friends, is there any circumstance in which he cannot be trusted to sustain us, keep us, and bless us? Because here is the God who keeps his own. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. 
None shall be lost, not even one, because here is the Lord who blesses us, even in the presence of our enemies. Renewal in the path of discipleship. Comfort in the place of deep darkness. Blessing in the face of opposition. And fourthly here, hope in the light of the future. He provides hope in the light of the future. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This final stanza of the psalm really contains a statement of faith and confidence in the Lord, his shepherd. Because this God is his God. He has an assurance and a confidence about the future. He has hope. Hope for this life and indeed a hope that extends beyond. In this life, his hope rests on the fact that the goodness and the mercy of God shall follow after him. Actually, the word follow here is a fairly weak translation. The, the word, original word really means to pursue. It's often used to describe someone chasing their enemies, relentlessly hunting them down. Never giving up. But what will pursue David will be the Lord's goodness and mercy or faithful love. I had a, a great uncle, a great uncle Johnny. He was a shepherd in Abington in the south of Scotland. And to assist him in his task, he had a couple of sheepdogs that he kept and he used them to manage the flock that was in his care. And here it's, it's as if the Lord, the Good Shepherd, sends out these two sheepdogs. One's called goodness. The other's called mercy. And they're there to track David down and to dog his footsteps all the days of his life. They will never give up pursuing him. And this, friends, is what sustains the believer, isn't it? In our walk with God. This is what keeps us going in difficult times, in challenging experiences. It's the relentless goodness and mercy of our God. Goodness and mercy pursues us and chases us. Whether we're beside the still waters, in the dark valleys, or even surrounded by all sorts of enemies, his goodness and mercy will not let us go until that day when we shall rest in his house forever. He will be with us. He will bring us home. tempted to say something about football here but I'm not going to how will you make it home how will you make it into the Lord's presence how will you make it into the house of God 
How can any of us have that assurance that we will dwell, we, we, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? He, how can any of us have that assurance? Because you're a, a good person, I'm sure you are. Because you're a religious person, I'm sure you are. Because you're a Presbyterian. Because you're better than, than other folk. No, friends, all these things are empty and vain hopes that will bring you no peace and no assurance. So what then is our hope of heaven? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Friends, he is our only hope. He is the only reason that any sinner can have confidence that they're going to heaven. He is our only comfort in life and death. He is all we want. He is all we need. He is enough. Let me ask you if he's your only hope this morning. Our God is a faithful God. He always keeps his promises. All those promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Unlike most, if not all of us, when he starts something, he is absolutely guaranteed to finish it, to complete it. I was reminded the other day of the words of the actor David Niven about his good friend Errol Flynn. He said, you can count on Errol Flynn He'll always let you down. And that's humanity in a nutshell, isn't it? Always let you down. But not so with God. Not so with the Lord. He never breaks his word. He never lets his people down. His goodness and mercy never, ever give us up. Many years ago, there was a competition for the best public reading of the 23rd Psalm. Among the competitors in the competition, there was, a, there was an actor, and there was also a, a very aged and elderly clergyman. The actor recited the psalm powerfully, mellifluous tones, without flaw, Eventually, however, it was the old minister's turn, and in a somewhat faltering voice and a stammering uh, manner, he recited the 23rd Psalm. And at the end of the competition, the judges put their heads together and they announced that the prize went to the, to the old minister. Oh, I said, the minister to the actor, I said, I'm, I'm so sorry you didn't win. I think you deserve to. It was a flawless performance. 
the act applied quietly. Not at all. There was one big difference. I know the psalm. You know the shepherd. Yes, many people can recite the psalm. But it only truly comes alive when you know the one of whom it speaks. When you really know the Lord as your shepherd. When you really know Jesus Christ as your saviour and king. I'm sure you know the psalm. But do you know the shepherd? I trust many of us here do. But perhaps there's someone who doesn't. Well, what better time to come to him and to give your life to him so that you will be able to confess not just that the Lord is a shepherd, but you, you will be able to confess with so many others down through centuries the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for that wonderful psalm and for the way that it speaks to us of you and your ways. Lord, help us to rest in Jesus Christ, to find all that we need, all that we want, all that we desire in him. And may he in turn lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Amen.